Church means many different things to different people. Uh, for some people, actually for many people, going to church is simply part of a weekly routine. That Every Sunday morning, you go to church and it has some sort of spiritual significance probably. But overall, more than anything, it's just a part of your routine. And for me, as I was growing up, that's really what church was about. I went to church on Sunday mornings because that's what my family did. But I really wasn't all that engaged in what was taking place there. For other people, going to church is complete drudgery. It's something they dread going to. It's something they, they resent having to go to church, but they feel like they're forced to go to church because usually someone in their family wants them to go. For other people on the opposite end of the spectrum, though, church is the most exciting part of their week. It's something they really look forward to. They look forward to the opportunity to worship God in the company of other believers. Uh, they look forward to opportunities to grow closer to Christ. And then there are many people in our culture for whom church is something that uh, was significant in the past. They grew up going to church perhaps during their childhood or, the, or their teenage years. But then as they grew older, they stopped attending church for any variety of reasons. So church uh, creates a variety of different perceptions and thoughts in people's minds. But I want to point out one one characteristic of all these descriptions of perceptions of church that I just pointed out. And that's that all these uh, perceptions of church revolve around the view that church is about the church service on Sunday mornings. And to be sure, church service on Sunday mornings is an important part of church. But there is much more to church than just what takes place here during this time right now. If you were, say, to go back in time and talk with an early Christian in the first few decades after the time of Jesus, and you were to compare notes on what your view of church was, and you talked about, well, we go to the church building, they would probably just look at you with this blank, um, uncertain stare, wondering, what? A church building? And you talk about the church service being the main thing that you go to. And again, that would probably create some questions in their minds, too, because in the early church, church was much more than simply a service on a Sunday morning or a building or just something that you do for an hour or two during the week. Back when uh, I started here at Freedens in those first few months, the church council, council and I were working on drafting a new mission statement for the church, trying to clarify what is our direction. And we spent a lot of time talking about a variety of the aspects of that mission statement. But I remember one, one specific discussion discussing what phrase should we use to clarify what our identity is as a church? We had two different phrases we were going back and forth between. One, are we a gospel-centered church? Or are we a gospel-centered community? Now, there may sound like a trivial difference between those. And on one hand, it can be kind of trivial, but only if we take the original meaning of church rather than the baggage that's accumulated over time. Because today when many people think of church in our culture, they think of what takes place here in the building on Sunday mornings. And for a, major, or for a significant portion of our culture, what takes place here is seen as irrelevant or outdated um, or just something they don't really care about, perhaps something very boring. And that's not an image we want to project in our, of what we're about here as a church. And so we ended up going with that phrase, gospel-centered community. And I said, in one sense... It isn't that much of a difference in what those two mean if you go back to the original meaning of church. Because whenever in the New Testament you see the word church, it's the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia simply means gathering. 
Ecclesia, that word for church, is referring to the relational connections of a group of people who are gathered for a common purpose. And used in the context of the New Testament, they're gathered around the purpose of worshiping God and growing as followers of Christ. And so ultimately, church simply means a community of Christians. It's not so much about the building. It's not so much about even specific activities, especially a Sunday morning service, even though that's a part of what it is. But more broadly, church is simply a community. So we are a gospel-centered community. And so this morning, we're going to look into the book of Acts to see more clearly how God has designed the community of Christians to function. What, what are we all about as a community? So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, there would be one in the pew or the chair in front of you where you can follow along if you'd like. We're in the second week of our series called Turning Points. And Turning Points is all about looking at the key events and the significant shifts that took place in the early, early church that led to the growth and the depth of the Christian community there and also led to the acceleration of the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. And last week, uh, as I said, we began the series and we were looking at the time that took place uh, just a few days after Jesus ascended into heaven when God poured out his Holy Spirit on the disciples in order to empower them for fruitful ministry. And it was a very amazing time where in the course of one day, the, the church, the, the group of Christians gathered there in Jerusalem expanded from only 120 Christians to over 3,000. And imagine what that would be like to wake up one morning and be thinking, okay, we have about 120 Christians here right now, uh, 120 Christians really in the world at that point. And then you go to bed that night and there were 3,000 Christians. I mean, that would be simply astounding to live in that sort of environment, to experience what God was doing at that time. And then you have the question, okay, what is God going to do next with this new multitude of Christian believers? And that's where we're going to pick up the story today, seeing how he formed them into a compelling community. That's our turning point we're looking at today, how God formed the early church, formed this gathering of new believers into a compelling community. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dig in to this passage. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious to call us to yourself through Christ. But we also thank you for how gracious you are in bringing us into a body of believers who can help us grow in our walk with God, help us grow in worshiping you. And as we study today from the book of Acts, what it means to be this compelling community that's centered around the gospel, we pray that you will be our teacher. I pray that, that we will not just look to what words come out of my mouth, but ultimately what your word, scripture, has to say and what you want to speak to us today through your spirit. So we pray that you will guide us, Lord, so that we too will grow as a compelling community centered around the gospel. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking this morning specifically at Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And this picks up right where we left off last week. The last verse we looked at last week said, Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Then the very next verse, verse 42, says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, <clears throat> to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So today we're looking at this concept of a compelling community that God was creating out of all these new Christians. And we're going to look at, um, specifically zoom in on verse 42, which really serves as a thesis statement for the entire passage. And from verse 42, we're going to look at four different activities that these early Christians were involved in that helped create this, this compelling community that centered around the gospel. And with these four activities they were engaged in, we see here at the beginning of the verse that it says they devoted themselves to these things. That means that they, they prioritized these activities, that these activities became some of the main focal points of everything they did in their lives. And the first thing we see here is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So broadening that for us today, it's saying that a compelling community is devoted to biblical teaching. Now specifically, Luke says it was the apostles' teaching, and apostles was simply another word for the 12 disciples, the men who spent the last three years literally following Jesus around in his ministry. And I think about how amazing that would have been to be there in that early church, to experience the teaching of the men who literally spent three years with Jesus. I mean, to be able to ask um, Peter, Peter, what did Jesus have to say about this or that? To be able to, to hear John explain what it was like to sit there and to listen or to see Jesus take some bread and fish and multiply into enough food to feed 5,000 people. I mean, that would have been absolutely amazing to be able to learn from these men who had literally followed Jesus. And I think about what they would have been teaching. On one hand, I think they probably would have been just conveying the teaching and the activities that Jesus had done. Saying, okay, this is what Jesus did. This is, therefore, what we need to believe and what we need to do as well. They also would have been teaching from the Old Testament because the Old Testament was their Bible. But they would have been teaching it very differently than the Jewish rabbis of the day. Because these disciples, they believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And because Jesus was the promised Messiah, who was foretold throughout the Old Testament, Jesus' coming radically shifts the way that you interpret the Old Testament, and it gives the Old Testament new, richer depth and meaning. And so they would have been teaching about what Jesus said, what the Old Testament said in light of Jesus' coming. But I think we may get kind of jealous of them and wonder, okay, why can't we have that as well? I mean, we don't have anything that quite compares to that. I mean, I'm certainly not an apostle. I mean, I want to communicate God's word, but I'm not an apostle. But the nice thing is we do have Scripture. We have the New Testament in addition to the Old Testament. The New Testament contains the core of what the apostles would have taught in those early churches. And so we still have an incredible witness of the apostles' teaching for us today. Now, as we're talking about teaching, I think it may have a very relevant question of why is teaching so important? And we're talking about biblical teaching. Why is teaching important? And in today's culture, many people aren't that big of a fan of listening to what others have to say. A lot of people like to really blaze their own trail, figure out what they want to believe and do for themselves rather than submitting to what someone else has to say. So why is teaching important? I would say in response to that, I would ask one more question, which is this. Where should people get their direction 
for how to live? Where should people get their direction for how to live? And that, that would be one of the things I would want to examine when talking about why is teaching important. Because in today's world, people get the direction from any variety of sources. But the places where people get their direction has changed over time. For many hundreds of years, people looked as some sort of expert or authority out there who would help them discern what is true and what direction they should go in life. In Europe and America, for a long time, people looked to divine authority. They looked to what did the Bible have to say. And they looked to pastors who could help interpret what the Bible said. In the last few hundred years, people have begun to scoff at the idea of divine authority telling what is true. But people have still, until recent days, looked to some sort of experts or some sort of authority figure to help them discern what's true. Rather than God and scripture and pastors, the new experts that people were looking to were people like Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud. But now we have younger generations, especially those in their teens and 20s, maybe in their 30s, who really don't like to look towards any sort of expert or authority figure for how to discern what's true and what they should do. Instead, they look to themselves and they look to their peers. Facebook has brought about a very interesting phenomenon in how younger people make decisions. Where if people have a question of what should I do, where should I go eat, what class should I take in college, how do I solve this ethical dilemma, what do you think about this? Rather than going to some expert or going to see what Scripture has to say, um, they go to their peers. They ask the question on Facebook, get responses, and then formulate their course of action or their belief based on what their peers think. One of the other main influencers in how people uh, think about truth and what they should do is media. I think media is probably the most powerful influence in our culture today, even more powerful than politics is, because media is shaping the way that people think. But we need to recognize that media is certainly not an objective source of truth. I don't think any media is completely unbiased. Even conservative media still wants to present things from a certain slant or a certain viewpoint. This last week I was reading um, on my Kindle as I was putting our daughter Tehila down for a nap. I was just reading and I came across this very disturbing editorial in USA Today. As I share about it, you may be familiar with it. It's about a trial that's going on in Pennsylvania right now uh, with an abortion doctor. Uh, he'd been running this clinic for several decades. And there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of late-term abortions uh, that were done in this clinic that were illegal because of how late in the pregnancy they were done. Some of these abortions were done on, on children who were up to 30 weeks old in the pregnancy. And, I mean, it's, it's horrific when you really read the details of what's coming out in this trial and what took place in that clinic over a period of a number of decades. There were, it, it tells about hundreds of babies who were, were born in this, in this abortion process who were still living, who were completely viable outside of the womb, but they were scheduled to be aborted, and, and, but they were living. And so this doctor or the assistants at the clinic would take scissors, put them in the back of the child's neck, and cut the spinal cord. This happened to hundreds of babies. And there are, there are other horrific parts of this account as well. I mean, a significant percentage of the people working in this clinic were completely unlicensed. There was a 15-year-old who was giving anesthesia to the women about to undergo um, their abortions. Uh, instruments were rusty. They were not sterilized. 
There are diseases being passed from one woman to the next, to the next, to the next. There are at least two women who died as a result of complications from what was taking place here. And so, I mean, it's just a completely horrific account. It's the type of thing that typically the media would jump all over. I mean, you're familiar with, I mean, the trials that go on that, that captivate media attention for weeks on end. I remember when I was in high school, in the middle of class, they were about to give the O.J. Simpson verdict. So we stopped class to watch what the verdict was on TV. I mean, media just eats this stuff up. I mean, it's kind of sad how media oftentimes focuses on the negative things. But this USA Today editorial that came out this week, it was giving these details, but it was asking a question on how come the media has done absolutely nothing with the story of this trial? Absolutely nothing. The, the person writing this editorial said that they did some research to try to find, has anyone else talked about this at all, even though the trial's been going on for some time? And she found out that there has literally been nothing in any sort of news about this trial. Now, now the information about the trial has been there for the media to put out to the public if they want to, but the media has chosen not to do that. I mean, there, there are a number of reasons why, but it's pretty commonly understood that one of the main reasons why is there's not really a good way that you can twist the, the, what's going on in this trial to support a pro-choice agenda. That's one of the main reasons that people think that, that the media hasn't shared about this. But it just shows media is certainly not a helpful source of truth. I mean, we can learn things from the media, but we should not look to media as our ultimate source of truth and how we should live our lives. We shouldn't look to the opinions of others uh, as the ultimate source of truth of how we should live our lives. So we come back to that question of where should people get their direction for how to live? That leads back to the question of why is teaching important? Well, biblical teaching is important because it gives us God's direction and God's truth for how we should live as individuals and as a church. I think of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said that all scriptures God breathes. So it all has its origin from God and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you hear that, that scripture is useful for teaching us, for rebuking, correcting us when we need to be realigned on where we're going. It's useful for training us so that we know how we ought to live our lives. And for us, if we want to live as a compelling community, as this early church was doing, as we are called to do, we need to continue to use scripture as biblical teaching for for how we shape our lives and how we shape the direction of this church. Church, as a compelling community, does not have the freedom to determine its own direction. Our, our, our direction ultimately comes from what God says specifically through Scripture. And there are many, many accounts of Christian organizations and Christian churches that have lost their way because they have, for some reason or another, let go of the authority of biblical teaching. I imagine that pretty much everyone here knows of YMCA. I mean, the place where you go to work out. And I mean, I, I think the YMCA was probably one of the top three or four places where I spent the most time when I was growing up because my parents were there a lot. And as I got a little bit older, I enjoyed being there a lot. The YMCAs are great. Do you know, though, the history of the YMCA? I mean, the YMCA stands for Young Men's Christian Association. 
It obviously has some Christian roots, and its roots are deeply biblical and deeply Christian. Back in the mid-1800s in England, there were a group of men who wanted to try to help point other young men to Christ and save them from the temptations of street life. And so they started the, the Young Men's Christian Association as a way that through Bible studies and prayer meetings and wholesome recreational activities and through explicit evangelism of getting the gospel out there, preaching on the streets and passing out gospel booklets and stuff like that, they wanted to help spread the gospel and help people grow as followers of Christ. As I said at the beginning, there were recreational activities that were wholesome, but also there were a lot of Bible studies and a lot of prayer meetings and a lot of evangelism. But we look at the YMCA today, it's still a great place. I mean, I don't have anything against the YMCA at all. But they have certainly strayed from their original mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think with them and with churches as well, it shows how it's very easy for what's called mission drift to take place, where if you don't stay in tune with your source document, with your original vision for where you're going, and for us, it's Scripture. You can easily drift away from the original mission that you set out to accomplish. It's happened with YMCA. It's happened with church, all kinds of different churches. And we as individuals and as a church are prone to that as well. And so if we want to be a compelling, gospel-centered community that God's calling us to be, we must be like this early church that starts with biblical teaching as the basis for everything we do. It gives us a distinctive identity because we as a church could focus on a variety of different things. And we're called to care for social justice. And I mean, we have our Forever Families ministry here, which is great. But, you know, we can get involved in all these other things. But if we lose the sense of the biblical authority that guides us, we lose that distinctive identity that makes the church the church. And so the first part of being a compelling community is biblical teaching and making that central. There is something else here. There are actually three other things. The second thing, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. This word for fellowship is the word koinonia. Maybe a word you might be familiar with. It simply means sharing life together, that you're deeply invested in each other's lives. And this is a principle that's found throughout the New Testament, that Christians ought to be deeply involved in each other's life. There's a series of commands throughout the New Testament that, that today we know as the one another commands. They're commands that all have the phrase one another that talk about how Christians should relate to each other. I want to share an example of a few of these one another commands that show the importance of sharing life together, being invested in each other's lives. For instance, we're told to love one another, to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to rejoice with one another and to grieve with one another to serve one another, to restore one another from their sin, to carry one another's burdens, to forgive one another, to encourage one another, to offer hospitality to one another, to confess your sins to one another, and to pray for one another. Here, I mean, this is talking about deep relationships that you have with each other, and this is something that if the only activity you have with other Christians takes place here in this church service, I mean, that's, that's better than not being in a church service, definitely. But also, if this is the only place that you have connection with other Christians in a meaningful way, you're not going to be able to fulfill the calling that God has placed upon us. Because you think about it, I mean, a lot of these one another commands cannot ultimately fully be fulfilled if we just attend a one-hour church service and then leave. 
I mean, it's really tough to really carry one, another, uh, one another's burdens if this is all we have, or even to forgive each other, to encourage one another in a meaningful way, to offer hospitality to one another. And so, so it's important that, that, just like the early church, that we are intentional to share life together with other Christians. A little bit later in this passage, we see a specific way these early Christians were carrying this out. In verse 44, it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. So, so it shows the, the, the way they're sharing life together. And it says one of the things they're doing is that as people have need, they're sharing their possessions. They're being generous with those around them in order to, to help them out. We see another description of this over at the end of chapter 4. This is also a passage that we're looking at today that's closely connected. Over at the end of Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, this is a passage that I think could be pretty easy just to kind of gloss over. Um, just reading along, and until you really stop and think about it, you ask, what did that just say? Did that say they actually were willing to sell their houses and sell their land in order to get money to help out other Christians? And this is what it's saying. I mean, imagine that in your own life. If you have a house, okay, we'll make it a little bit easier. Say you have two houses. Say you have a lake home which I know a number of people around this area do have. Say you have a lake home. Would you ever consider selling that lake home in order to get some money to help out other Christians who are in need? And it seems pretty radical, doesn't it? Now, we do need to understand that that the book of Acts is not telling us that we need to do that in terms of we need to go out and sell a car, we need to sell a house. It's not a command here. It's just describing what the early church did. But in the scripture, the clear command is that we are willing to be generous with those around us. And that generosity might look different in different circumstances. And that generosity probably means more than just saying, well, okay, here's $20 to help out. Even though that's nice and can be helpful. But we need to tailor that generosity to the specific needs of the people who we're interacting with. And ultimately what we see in the early church is that they were very devoted to each other. And just think about how that would look from people on the outside. I mean, the world around them was probably cynical, kind of like the world around us. Uh, Cynical, saying, does anyone really care about others besides themselves? But to see Christians really caring for each other and loving each other in deep and tangible ways, I think that is the essence of what a compelling community is. It would be like, wow, This is amazing to see people loving each other that deeply. We also see in this passage that they weren't just committed to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and sharing life together, but also to the breaking of bread. This is referring to that they were sharing meals together. They were sharing meals together. Now, some people think breaking of bread here is talking about sharing the Lord's Supper. And it possibly is. But I think the broader context here shows that primarily it's just talking about, you know, 
they're eating together. They're, they're enjoying sharing food with one another. And one of the reasons I say that is later on in verse 46, it, it uses this term breaking bread again, but it's, it's clearly in the context of just eating a meal together. It says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And one of the other things we need to recognize is that in the early church, the Lord's Supper was not the standalone event that's just kind of by itself in the midst of a church service. For them, the Lord's Supper was attached to a larger meal, a regular meal they were eating together, and then they'd celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember Jesus' death on their behalf. But what we see is this pattern of the early church eating meals together. And this may seem kind of trivial, but in reality, there's something very, very powerful when you're sharing meals with other people. I think about back when I was in college. I attended a church that was only about a block from, uh, from the college campus. And, and the house where I lived with a few other guys was only about half a block from the college campus. Slightly different direction, but still only a few minutes walk from my house to the church. And we were trying to figure out ways. How can we get more people to attend the Sunday morning, uh, the college uh, Sunday school class, and attend the church service? And so we can, somehow we came up with this idea of Sunday morning breakfast. And so we started just having a breakfast at our house uh, before the Sunday school class and before the church service. And, you know, it was a bit of a sacrifice because usually after staying up late with friends on Saturday night, we had to get up early on Sunday morning to cook. Um, definitely cost some money. And I wasn't the smartest back then because I never planned that far ahead. I always knew we were going to have Sunday morning breakfast. But somehow... It was always Sunday morning. I have to get up early enough to go to the local gas station in order to buy food. And, you know, um, food at gas stations is not the cheapest. It would have been better to plan ahead um, in order to go to the grocery store. But, you know, I'd run in the gas station to get bacon and eggs and, and bread and um, milk and stuff like that. But it was absolutely worth it to have these breakfasts. I mean, to get 10 or 15 people together on a Sunday morning, uh, to share fellowship together, to just have the encouragement of the time together, to go to Sunday school and church together. And one of the other cool things is there were people involved in these breakfasts who didn't normally attend church. People were willing to invite their friends. That's the power of sharing a meal together. On Friday nights uh, here at church, there's a young adult's life group that I'm a part of. And last fall, we decided, you know, let's try something different. Let's try, in addition to the normal stuff we're doing, let's try having a potluck meal at the beginning of our gatherings. And so we started doing that in the fall, and it's been really cool to see how the relationships in the group have deepened and have grown and have more people even come in during this time as we've been sharing meals together. That's the power of a meal. It takes people deeper. It relaxes people a little bit. You get to know more about what's going on in people's lives. It's really cool to share meals together, and this is something the early church was involved in doing and it's part of what made them a compelling community because of the depth of relationships there. Now, again, it's not a biblical command anywhere that I know of that says um, share meals with each other, although we are commanded to show hospitality. But at the very least, it's a very helpful principle that if you want to build relationships with people, have meals with them. Now, and I think it's important to recognize, too, that the things that are happening here in this early church were not necessarily commanded by the apostles, it wasn't like this top-down organized thing of, hey, we're going to have Pollock meals every Sunday. It was just people enjoying sharing life together. And so if you're thinking about, okay, how can I be a part of building more and more of a compelling community in my midst? You need to recognize you shouldn't just wait for the church to officially 
create some program or some ministry, just do it. Invite people over. Have meals together. Study God's word together. That's a part of what it is to be a compelling community and enjoy sharing life together with one another. Now, the last thing uh, of these four things that, the, that Luke says that the um, early church devoted themselves to was praying. They prayed together. And we see this model throughout Acts that, that continually it seemed like the early church was just getting together and praying. And this is powerful in terms of how it draws people together relationally, but it's also powerful in how it connects the community with the power source, spiritual power source of God through prayer. And I think this, this praying together is one of the big reasons that the early church grew so much and expanded and, and was so fruitful and so compelling to the outside world. I want to look to the last couple of verses of this passage and see the results of this compelling community. Verse 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And they were praising God. And this is one of the things that happens when you have this, this rich, compelling Christian community that's routinely coming together that builds people up in their walk with God. It causes people to praise and glorify and worship God throughout their lives. Also, this compelling com- community caused, people to enjoy, or caused them to enjoy the favor of all the people, it says in for- verse 47. There's something similar, similar over in chapter 5 that says that this community of believers was highly regarded by the people. It shows that, that people, non-Christians, were very impressed when they saw the community of what was taking place among the Christians and saw their love that the Christians had for each other. They were impressed. And it says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were not only impressed, but many non-Christians were coming to know Christ, largely as a result of the witness of the way that these Christians were living their lives together. Now here at Freedens, we have a diagram that we call the up and out triangle. It talks about the three key relationships that Christ followers have. And what we see in this passage is that this compelling Christian community, this biblical and following Christ, really lives out all three of those key relationships. There's obviously the in relationship among the body of Christ as people are connected with one another. But remember, that led to praising God. That's the up relationship that builds people closer to Christ. And also there's obviously this out component as well as more and more people are coming to know Christ as they see this compelling community live the gospel out. Now when we think about the early church, I think it's very easy to idealize the early church and say, you know, I wish we were more like the early church. We just need to become more like them. We need to return to exactly how the early church was. But I think it's important that we don't over-idealize the early church. Yes, what was taking place in this passage was really, really cool. But we also have to recognize the early church, just like any other church today, had its challenges. There are some of the early churches that I certainly would not be ex- very excited if you said I have to go pastor those churches. The church in Corinth, um, that would not have been an easy church to pastor. If you're wondering why I say that, uh, you can read 1 Corinthians. I mean, to read about the divisions in the church, the heresy taking place in the church, the, the lawsuits among Christians in that same church. I mean, they were suing one another. Um, the, the gross sexual immorality that was unchecked in that church. Um, chaos during the Lord's Supper. There were problems in the early church just like we have today. Whenever you have sinful people, even in a church setting, you're going to have issues at times. 
And the early church was no different. So I think we need to be careful not to idealize them, but we can still learn from them. But in this passage, there is, over in chapter 5, which is also part of today's passage, there is an account of something that didn't go extremely well in the early church. Something that was about to creep in that was unhealthy. And it's the account of, of a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. I'm going to read this account. Acts 5 verse 1. It talks about something that endangered the health of the early church. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. The great, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down, down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So this is a pretty startling account. We see that God kills Ananias and Sapphira, on the spot. They had been doing something that they saw others doing in the church in terms of they saw a need, they sold a piece of land in order to get some money. But evidently there was some deceit here where they evidently had said, we're going to give all the money from this land to the church to help the poor people. But instead of actually following through and giving it all to the church, they held back some of it for themselves. There's nothing wrong with keeping some for yourselves. That wasn't their sin. The problem was the deceit that they were acting hypocritically, that they were holding back the truth. And that was why God put them to death. It still seems pretty stark here. And I think we have the question of why did God put them to death? It doesn't seem like this little lie would warrant something that strict. Well, I think one of the main reasons for this is that God wanted to preserve the church's health. The church was still very, very young. It was still very fragile at that point. And I think God knew what could disrupt the compelling nature of this early church and the healthy nature of the church when it's still this young? Let me give an example uh, from today's life. Um, I have a couple children, and I, I hear many people say, man, your kids are so cute. They're so fun to be around. You know, it is true. They are cute, and they are fun to be around, except they aren't always completely fun to be around. There are certain times you probably wouldn't want to be around our kids quite as much. Such as if you're in the grocery store and, and you're going down the aisle and they're just completely melting down and throwing a big fit and everyone throughout the whole store can hear it, you would probably not be super excited to be associated with the kids right at that point, would you? You might wave and say, hey, see you tomorrow. Uh, but you, you probably wouldn't be that excited to be that closely associated with them. 
I mean, same thing. If you have two kids who are just bickering and fighting, which I know as our kids get older will be a reality, uh, as Tehillah is able to start fighting back a little bit, kids are not that much fun to be around in that time. Yeah, they may be cute and may be fun a lot of the time, but there are certainly times where, where, you know, you really don't get that excited about being in their presence. I think God knew it's the same way in a church setting. That if you have a church where there is deceit or hypocrisy or conflict or gossip, it's not a healthy, inviting place to be. It's not going to be very compelling for people to enter that environment. And I think that's why in this setting that God chose such a drastic route with Ananias and Sapphira. He said, look, I know that there will be challenges down the line, but at this early phase, we're not going to let that, enter, that hypocrisy and that deceit enter the church right now. Now, we do have to recognize this isn't God's normal way of handling these types of issues. His normal way, which is still prevalent or still active today, is that he works through the church and specifically through the church's leaders to keep the church healthy. And we see this a number of different times through the Bible, but let me just point you to one. One is in Titus 3, verse 10. It's talking about how you deal with divisive people, people who like to stir up conflict in the church. Paul says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. So give them a chance to repent. Give them a chance to leave behind their divisive and and conflict-loving ways. But after that, have nothing to do with him. They're saying, get this bad influence out of the church if they aren't willing to repent. Because when you have that type of influence in the church setting, it's no longer a compelling community that others want to be a part of. So a question for us is how can we grow as individuals and as a church family in being a compelling community for the gospel? Well, I think one thing is just look around, see what needs there are around us and seek to meet those needs within the church family and outside the church family. If you see someone who has a financial need, see if there's a way you can help out or point point them to someone who can. I'm encouraged by seeing this lived out in a variety of ways in our midst. I think of people who, um, who are so willing to help others move. I mean, we have people from time to time in the church who need help moving from one house to another. You get a big group of guys together to help out, serving in a practical way. Or someone needs some meals. They come home from the hospital and people just randomly take meals by their house. That's a great way to serve people. Think about our Forever Families ministry and how that, that bonds people together around a common cause. And it's really a tangible way to, to show the world, hey, we care about people. We care about orphans. And I mean, I really am hearing around the Port Washington community how people are recognizing that that's really a compelling cause that Freedoms is becoming known for. And not only that, but it's also helping out Christian families who are in the adoption process with financial grants. So I want to encourage you, look for ways just to practically, in, in a non-formal, non-structured way, but just help out people who are in need. But also, if this Sunday morning service is your only way of connecting with the church family, look for deeper ways to connect. I mean, the easy starting point is Sunday morning classes. You're already here. Just come an extra hour early. Stay an extra hour late. Get involved in the Sunday morning class. We just had a new series of classes start this morning. You can still jump in next week if you didn't this morning. Just get involved in something deeper than this because that's when you're going to be able to experience the power of true Christian community. We talk a lot about the importance of sharing the gospel. We have to recognize as people evaluate the gospel and determine whether or not they want to commit themselves to following Christ, 
they're probably not just evaluating the gospel. They're also evaluating the people who are delivering the gospel message, the people who claim that, to be gospel-centered. And if people look at, at Christians and look at the Christian community and say, well, there's not really anything there that I'd really want. It doesn't look any different than the rest of the world around me. Why would I want that? It's not going to be very compelling to drive them to want the gospel either. But if, in addition to hearing about the love of God through Christ, they also see love lived out in the Christian community in a way that they don't see in the rest of the world, that's going to be incredibly compelling to draw them in to the Christian community and also draw them to Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, he said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said that your love for one another is the measure of whether or not you are really following me. And so for us, my prayer is that we will be a compelling gospel-centered community that holds the gospel out to others, but also is living it out in our midst and creating a compelling case for, for the gospel where people are on a regular basis drawn in and committing their lives to Christ, even as we grow together in our own Christian community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not leave us as orphans in our faith, that you didn't, um, when you went to heaven, you didn't say, well, good luck. But you sent the Holy Spirit, and, and you left us with the gospel, and you also left us with the community of believers. And I pray, Lord, that you would be building this community of believers here at Freedom's Church, that we will grow in, in our following of Christ and in our witness to the surrounding world, and in our love for one another. Thank you for the love that's already here. God, I see that in many, many ways, and it's very encouraging. And I pray that that will continue, and that you will bear much fruit through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.